How can I know God is real? What does the Bible say about politics? Why does a good God allow suffering? If you have questions about faith, life or culture, don't be afraid to ask. This This is Ask with David Dean. G'day everyone, Dave Dean here. And our question for the week is, why do Christians refer to God as male? On July 13, 2018, Nickelodeon actress turned pop singer Ariana Grande released a hit single track titled God is a Woman. Now, her song is by no means a statement of theology. Her point is more about the godlike power of feminine sexuality. But in an era of overdetermined pop narratives, this intertwining of sexuality and spirituality speaks to the larger socio-cultural, even political climate of our day as it concerns topics such as gender, identity, sexual liberation, freedom, empowerment, and so on. Now, in saying that, I don't mean to downplay the significance of this question. Simply, I think it's important to recognise that until relatively recently, despite the odd suggestion here or there, referring to God in the masculine has not been a very contentious issue for the church. So with that said, of course, Ariana Grande is not the only one getting her voice out there on this subject of God's gender. In 2015, for example, a group of female bishops within the Church of England campaigned for a more, quote, expansive language and imagery about God, end quote, that would encompass feminine pronouns. And we've seen instances as well in uh, the arts with the 2007 book and 2017 follow-up film The Shack, where God is depicted as a female Uh, We've seen it in tabloids such as a 2016 New York Times opinion piece titled Is God Transgender, where New York Rabbi Mark Samoth contends that the Hebrew Bible offers a highly elastic view of gender, which may just suggest that God himself has a fluid gender identity. So in our day and age of gender equality, these kinds of questions about God's gender have been asked and are being asked. And this question then is quite a relevant one. Why do Christians refer to God as male? In response, I want to suggest three panels of thought that I think lend towards something of a answer or response. First, it needs to be said that God has no gender. There's an important distinction to be made right up front between the divine nature of God, his inner triune life from all eternity, if you will, and the way in which you and I, non-divine human mortal creatures, know or understand that divine nature. The Bible which is God's revealed word to us, says God is spirit, John 4.24. Male and female are biological words, and bios constitutes created realities which God necessarily transcends if he is to be understood as the creator, the creator of male and female, and all such physical marks of chromosomes, genitals, hormones, and, and the like. Now, we'll get to the incarnation of God as a unique Jewish man named Jesus shortly, but suffice to say just here that the gender of Jesus is something that belongs to his human nature, his flesh, which mustn't be confused with his divine nature as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus' masculinity is no more evidence of God's gender than his humanity is evidence of God's mortality. So God is neither male nor female nor anything in between. His divine nature utterly transcends gender, but that is not the same as God being transgender, as that again would presuppose gender or some sort of biological category bounding him that he then has to overcome or cross over. 
To be God is to utterly transcend all senses of creatureliness and physical or biological classifications of space-time and other such limitations, such that the very concepts of cis or transgender in reference to God is just a theological confusion, a confusion that, according to the Apostle Paul, is frankly a form of idolatry. As he writes in Romans 1.25, to worship and serve created things like a gendered God is to exchange the truth of God for a lie. But with all of that said, it certainly is the case that the Bible, again, God's revealed word to us, consistently refers to God in the masculine. So on the one hand, we do say that the divine nature of God is genderless because he is not a created being. But on the other hand, the Bible refers to God in the masculine. Why? Well, that is our second point here. The Hebrew language is gendered. Today, the idea of gender binary language is obviously a contended one which is why we have an ever-growing list of pronouns for how individuals wish to be identified. But when it comes to, say, the English language more specifically, there are really only three general ways to ascribe gender to nouns. We have the masculine, him, such as husband, feminine, her, such as wife, and neuter, it, such as child. These are the three options we have in English. But not all languages are English. Hebrew, for example, which is the language of the Old Testament where we are first introduced to the Judeo-Christian God, it always ascribes gender to a noun. The neuter it is just not an option. So there has to be a choice between him or her. And I suspect if the feminine was chosen in the Hebrew instead of the masculine, then this question would simply be flipped around the other way. And we may well be asking, why do Christians refer to God as female? You see, the Hebrew language forces us to choose between male or female, the masculine and the feminine. Now, depending on how you view your Bible, either the Hebrew authors selected the masculine pronouns or God himself inspired the authors to refer to him in the masculine, as I understand 2 Timothy 3.16 to be suggesting. In other words, while God has no gender, he has revealed himself to us in such a way that we can understand him as a him in gendered language which is to say he has accommodated himself to the constraints of human language. Now, this might be a little confusing, but, well, theology can be confusing. (laughs) But speaking of the relationship between how we know ourselves and how we know God, John Calvin put it like this, quote, Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our feeling of ignorance, vanity, want, weakness, in short, depravity and corruption reminds us that in the Lord and none but he dwell the true light of wisdom, solid virtue, exuberant goodness. We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the good things of God. On the other hand, it is evident that man never attains to a true knowledge until he had previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself, end quote. What Calvin is saying is that from our place as creatures contemplating the Creator, there is a mutual interaction in our knowledge of God as divine, i.e. without a gender, and our knowledge of ourselves as human beings, i.e. as gendered creatures. After all, Genesis 1 tells us that human beings are made in God's image, not the other way around, so it follows that human knowledge of God begins with human categories of thought. By the way, gender is not the only way in which we see this idea of God knowledge in scripture. All sorts of analogies are used. God has eyes, wings, cattle on a thousand hills. Even the adjectives which apply to God, such as loving, good, wrathful, patient, just, and so on, these are all ways to help us human beings make sense of our commonality with God. But none of them should be taken in exactly the same sense in which we understand them as human beings. 
the imperfect love that I have for my son, for example, may be said to be something like or analogous to God's love of me in sending Jesus, John 3.16, John 17.24, but it is categorically not the same as God's infinite love. I know what love is in God because I have experienced it and because I have shown it, but my experience of it as a human is not categorically the same as what God's love is. God's love is the perfection of what I love and what I have experienced as love. The fatherhood of God is the perfection of my being a father to my son. God is how I know what true love is. He is how I know what true fathering is. So first of all, God has no gender. But second, the Hebrew language is gendered as an accommodation to human understanding so that we can know and understand and appreciate something about God's personal nature. But with all of that considered, the question could still be asked, why do we continue today to refer to God as a male? Because at least here in Australia, we aren't speaking ancient Hebrew. We aren't forced to choose between the masculine and the feminine. So shouldn't we update our language to neuter terminology? This leads to a third and final consideration. We cannot improve upon God's self-revelation. With everything we've considered, it remains that God has chosen to reveal himself in the masculine form. We can reject that, of course, but at that point, the issue is not so much why Christians refer to God as male. It's rather the nature and authority of the Bible as it informs us about God. We either take him at his word or we do not. Incidentally, if we do not, if we think that it is inappropriate for God to self-identify as a male, then I think we need to be ready to answer the charge that we may be guilty of the complaint we are making by forcing the neuter onto God and denying him the right to self-identify in human language as a he. That to me does seem like a contradiction. What's more, it seems to read in a competing sense of male and female equality to the Bible, which the Bible itself rejects. Human history is replete with inequality between the sexes, to be sure. And as a consequence, there have been many, and hopefully there are many more social reforms to come. But when we read the scriptures, we read from the very beginning that human beings were created both male and female in God's image. The sexes are equal image bearers of God, which tells us that the complementarity of masculinity and femininity together reflect the nature of God. In fact, God said to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. There is something incomplete in reflecting the image of God if it were just one of the sexes. Together, as one, male and female image our maker. So what that means then is that masculinity and femininity in human beings together reflect God's nature. And this complementarity we see right throughout the scriptures. On the one hand, it is true that God is consistently referred to by masculine pronouns such as father instead of mother, son of God and son of man instead of daughter of God and daughter of woman, king instead of queen, priest instead of priestess, husband and bridegroom instead of wife and bride and so on. But on the other hand, he is also depicted with distinctively feminine imagery. Throughout Isaiah, God is likened to, quote, a woman in labor, 42.14, a woman nursing her child, 49.15. In Hosea, he is likened to a mother bear protecting her cubs, 13.8. Numbers 11.12, Deuteronomy 32.18, God uses pregnant language. Deuteronomy 32.11, God is likened to an eagle feathering her nest. And Matthew 23.37, Jesus likens himself to a mother hen gathering her chicks. We could go on citing scripture. It's just interesting to note as well that while there is no mention of the word Shekinah in the Bible, Shekinah referring to the dwelling or settling of the divine presence of God. 
That word is found throughout rabbinic literature and it happens to be a feminine Hebrew word commonly associated with the concept of the Holy Spirit. So the point is God has chosen to reveal himself in masculine pronouns, yes, but the various masculine and feminine descriptions of God in scripture make clear what we have been saying from the outset, namely that God transcends the creaturely biological categories of gender, which in the human form reflect something of God's nature in a complementary fashion. Indeed, the two modalities of the feminine and the masculine, they come together ultimately in the metaphor of marriage where the two become one. The Christian life is essentially a marriage relationship with a male and a female, distinct yet equal as one flesh. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul writes when he says to the Galatians in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not eliminating distinctives. He's eliminating inequalities. There is a harmony, a unity, an equality, a oneness in Christ. So we cannot improve upon God's self-revelation by fixing the pronouns to our contemporary sensibilities, which are themselves the product of a broken, non-biblical view of masculinity and femininity. And look, I get it. I truly do understand that for some Masculine language can be difficult. There are many of us who have been abused by males, father figures, and so the idea of a masculine father figure in God may be very uncomfortable. And yet scripture, if it is to be God's word and not our own, it needs to stand as it is without importation of our real broken experiences and broken views of masculinity. Indeed, the very acknowledgement of hurt at the hand of a earthly father is the realization that masculinity in that parental context is not the way it should be. That's why it hurts. God is the paradigm for who a father is to be. And that offers the person who has had the bad experiences with their biological fathers a hope that even they, the fatherless, can have an Abba father, a daddy. And at this point, let me just come back to something that I said previously in passing about the incarnation of Jesus. The Bible tells us in various places that God is known throughout creation and more specifically in his word, the Bible. And in these contexts, he accommodates himself, whether that be to the beauty of a sunset or the Hebrew words in the Old Testament. But above all else, he has accommodated himself to human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is no constraint of language. It is a constraint of flesh and blood, which Hebrews 2 explains to us was necessary if he was to be a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Quote, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. End quote. So come in as a person with a purpose to redeem humanity from the curse of death to live everlasting, Jesus had to be gendered. I mean, there is something deeply impersonal about a neuter pronoun. You know, if, if you and I were talking and in reference to my wife across the room, I said, look at it, there is something inherently depersonal about that. To refer to my wife as a she or a her is to ascribe something more than just femininity. It's to ascribe personality and all of the value, dignity, and worth that comes with that. So the fact that the incarnation is not non-binary is a good thing for humanity. Jesus is a God-man, not a God-woman, and yet as a man, he radically challenges the patriarchal stereotypes of brawny, controlling, domineering, authoritative masculinity that we know today. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This Jesus subverts our assumptions of what it is to be male by being the king of the universe enthroned on a cross wearing a crown of thorns. This is deeply personal. It is loving. It is a revelation that no it could ever have displayed. The Bible tells us that all men and women are made equal in God's likeness, but God chose to reveal himself to humanity uniquely as a man in Jesus, which does not imply inequality between the sexes any more than Israel implies inequality between the nations. Nevertheless, the distinction of Jesus as a man is not insignificant because by becoming human and uniting himself to us, God didn't just save our sins. He now relates to us in the way that a husband relates to a wife. He fulfills gender and reveals its true meaning such that the categories of man and woman end up in the final analysis being all about him. And that takes us right back to the beginning where we see human beings created male and female in the image and likeness of God. You see, as a man, Jesus not only reveals what it is to be God in the image of a human, he not only redeems what it is to be a human made in the image of God, he furthermore relates to us like a husband to a wife in a marriage covenant, the most intimate and personal and secure kind of relationship we know as human beings. So I just cannot see how the de-gentification of language is a helpful step because it, it rejects the very way God has chosen to reveal himself, redeem us, and relate to us in Christ. So to wrap all that up, why do Christians refer to God as male? We've considered that God has no gender, yet the Hebrew language is gendered, and therefore at the end of the day, if God's word is God's word, and he has chosen to reveal himself in masculine terms, then we need to leave it as it stands, because we cannot improve upon God's self-revelation, which serves as the very loving, secure, covenantal basis of our marriage relationship to him. Do you have a question about Christian beliefs, theology, doctrine, philosophy or culture? Don't be afraid to ask. Go to drcdean.com forward slash ask. That's Dean with an E.